I have the best plot idea ever. A Scandinavian prince vows revenge after his father, the king, is murdered by his uncle, the king's brother, who then marries the late king's widowed queen, the prince's mother. With me so far? Just wait, it gets better. On his path to vengeance, the prince kills a lot of other people, but passes up the opportunity to kill his uncle because his religion dictates that the timing isn't quite right. At various points, he, in no particular order, loses his path, disguises himself in a self-deprecating charade, gets a call to action from supernatural forces that may or may not be his dead father, has a quasi-incestuous confrontation with his mother in her chambers that involves one or more people hiding behind a cloth screen, and has an intense moment with a crazy old man speaking in gibberish and riddles who presents him with the disembodied skull of his childhood court jester who the prince held in great esteem. On top of that, this story, told from anybody else's perspective, would have the prince as the villain and the agreed-upon villain playing the role of the tragic hero. Any Shakespeare nerds out there, or most people who sat through an English lit class in high school, will undoubtedly recognize the basic outline of Hamlet. It's probably the most influential play written in the English language. But as much as Hamlet has had an immeasurable cultural impact, the story isn't original. Some scholars out there with professional skin in the myth-making game say the play was inspired by the death of the bard's young son, Hamnet. I've seen enough Stratford stands make the connection that if I hear Hamlet, Hamnet, coincidence, one more goddamn time, I'm going to puke. The story's origins are pretty clear. It's based on the Norse legend, the saga of Amleth. Amleth? Hamlet? You think that's a coincidence? It isn't a coincidence, and I think today's film serves well as the final word in that debate. It's not only the most accurate period Viking film to date, but it's also the first sincere effort at bringing Shakespeare's source material to the big screen, and it really is a spectacular effort in the truest sense of the word. There isn't a frame of this film that isn't just absolutely dripping with spectacle. There's blood, and nudity, and magic, and sex, and gods, and flying horses, and volcanoes, and Bjork and an undead fossil dream warrior sword-keeping guy who can only be killed by having his head cut off and shoved up his own ass because Norse mythology is way more awesome than it ever gets credit for, and it gets a lot of credit for being awesome. So if you came to this film looking for a new and different take on Hamlet starring Ethan Hawke that doesn't suck, you definitely won't be disappointed. But it has an awful lot to offer on its own merits, even if you've never read, heard, or watched a line of Shakespeare before in your life. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So put on the animal pelt of your choice, dance around a bonfire in the driving rain, and scream until your eyes roll back in your head and you think you are the animal whose skin you're wearing so that you can raid that village with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we welcome special guest Dave Feldman on our epic quest to avenge our father, save our mother, and kill Fjolnir, and discuss Robert Eggers' astonishing, blood-soaked, drug-fueled saga of climaxing naked on a mountain in an ocean of lava, The Northman.
in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And we also have a special guest today, someone who has done a lot of research for us in the past. He is a personal friend of ours and a friend of the podcast. Dave is here with us today. Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello there. I'm Dave. So... Today we're talking about a very recent film. We were trying to catch something that would still be in theaters, but it's just barely out of theaters. And it is The Northman from just about a month ago or so, 2022. So before we get started, uh, Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and why you wanted to guest on this episode? So sure. Um, I think I told you when we were talking about this a while back, maybe in May, um, it was like, hey, so we're doing The Northman. And uh, I had been... Uh, drinking some scotch that night <laughs> and um a good start i told you that uh no, no this one's mine <laughs> i i demand it for the good of the podcast because <laughs> uh <laughs> you know I, I've, I've studied the vikings off and on my whole life my my wife sam is currently studying this in in university for a master's degree we'll refer to some of her stuff as we go along i love this movie i've seen it three times and could kind of bring a, an interesting perspective to, to this. Yeah, and I'm not going to let you get away with not mentioning that you have a background in, what, what do you call it, medieval martial arts. Dave is the person who I'm always referencing, who is the sword nerd who tells us when, you know, the German two-handed swords are in the wrong period, etc. So what's your background in that, Dave? Uh, well, I do, uh, if you please, historical European martial arts, Dan. <laughs> and So you LARP? Um, absolutely not. Ian's LARPing in it. <laughs> Look, I don't have any problem with people who LARP. I really don't. Have you met them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we love LARPers on this show. We've gone on right. We love everybody. I'm teasing. I, I love LARP. <laughs> <laughs> they just say I love LAMP. I love LARP. Are you just looking at things and saying you love them? So you're into the a little bit more combat oriented uh, yeah. sport? Yeah, like, and and please, it's it's not sort of nerd. It's definitely sword bro. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sword bro, Dave. Fair enough. That makes sense. The intellectual meathead has always been my my goal. I think you're there. Yeah, nailed it. Well, we're gonna take plenty of opportunities to shit on Dave in this episode because he's a friend of the podcast. And what kind of friend are you if we don't shit on you a little bit? But Dave is also our researcher for the episode. So between uh, some of his research and some of what uh, Sam has researched in the past and sent us articles, etc., Dave is going to introduce us to this time period a little bit. So um, just right off the bat, a note on semantics relating to uh, the Northmen. The Norse are the old Norse speaking peoples from Scandinavia. The Viking Age is used to denote a specific time period, classically described from an Anglo-Saxon point of view as 750 to 1000, but in reality, likely from the turn of the 7th and 8th century until well after 1000 AD, depending on the country. The sagas, of which the story is one, are not historically accurate. They were written down many centuries later and are usually viewed through the lens of institutional Christianity. And what we have now are actually copies of copies of, of the originals. But what was interesting about The Northman was that this film 
took the original story from the sagas and went back even further to create a historically accurate representation of the culture and the circumstances in which the story would have taken place. I can bore all of you with lots and lots of stuff from, you know, the Viking Age, from, you know, the raid on Lindisfarne to the raid on Paris and the the uh, Varangian Guard over in Constantinople. We'll probably get there eventually. But uh, yeah, just wanted to make sure that we're talking about the the right cultures and the right people from the outset. Far out. Yeah. And as usual, for anyone who is first time listener isn't familiar, you know, we'll bring up what needs to be brought up here. And Dave's going to talk about the research and the history a little bit, but we're not going to sit here and read you 10 pages of stuff. So we will put out our surplus ordinance after the episode comes out and we will put all of the research as well as links to scholarly articles there. And you can read that for yourself if you want to dive deeper into it. And we will talk a lot more about that later in the episode. But uh, to start us off, Katie is here with our mission briefing. Robert Eggers is a relatively new filmmaker. With The Witch and The Lighthouse under his belt, his work is expected to be critically successful. But The Northman is a whole nother level of filmmaking from this director. In the past, he has prided himself on the historical accuracy of his films, and The Northman also pushes those boundaries through extensive contributions of historical scholars that helped ensure the costuming, set production, and design would be accurate to a very specific period in history, namely the early 900s. It's not unusual for a period piece to try to achieve historical accuracy, but Eggers goes beyond that with this story and tries to give an accurate interpretation of the culture's mythological reality as well. It has few boundaries between the waking world and the spiritual one and uses that to great effect throughout the film. Like all his films before, his approach was both enjoyed and disliked by critics and audiences, and this one was a little more contentious than his previous two. There were complaints of it being too plodding and methodical with its storytelling and feeling like a very gory history report. For others, the commitment to accuracy, dramatic camera work, and the ethereal quality of the film made up for any lacking in the story or the long running time. So one of the most prominent parts of this film is the brutality of the battle scenes. How did you guys all feel about how well the film pulls that off in whatever that means for you? Liam, what do you think? I honestly didn't have a uh, a problem with the with the brutality or the the violence. I think it mostly it mostly made sense to me. The only thing that rang kind of weird for me is in that first big raid scene. There was a lot going on in the background and some things that I think weren't necessarily inaccurate, but like that one raid could have had its own movie for the amount of absolutely heinous shit that was going on in it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if all of it got a chance to hit or breathe as much as it could. It was almost like trying to squeeze come and see into the background of a Viking movie that got mentioned in the reviews. Interesting, because I, I didn't read any of the reviews, but there were parts of it that I was like, oh, this is not dissimilar from come and see, but this is five minutes instead of like 45 minutes. So I'm kind of curious to what you guys thought about it. And did they I don't think they necessarily went too far with anything. 
but I don't know if I loved the treatment that each little violent vignette got in those scenes when it's so much happening. Interesting, because I recognize what you're talking about, yet I actually loved what they were doing with it. Now, and again, Dave's going to have an opportunity to tell us what's accurate versus what's not. But in general, from what I read, I realized that as much research as they did for this film, and as much as they tried to be as accurate as they could, when it comes to maybe not just the violence, but an aspect of the raid that I'll mention in a second, and also the religious ceremonies, the sacrifices and rituals, it's actually toned down compared to reality. Meaning that when you see a horse being sacrificed in a burial ritual later, one account that I was reading about in one of these scholarly articles, not only were 12 horses sacrificed and many other animals, but they were hacked to pieces while still alive. So what what the scholar points out is that if you were actually at this burial ceremony, it was an extremely violent and gory event with like horses screaming and things dying and blood all over everything, probably running down the sides of this burial ship, etc. And that's part of it. That's right. part of the whole process. Like it's 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 not incidental. I just remember watching that going, man, that's going in some producer's bed. <laughs> <laughs> Nice Godfather throwback. Oh, yeah. On that same note, the thing that I noticed, reference what Liam is saying, where there's like all this violence in the background and things that they're not focusing on. They just kind of are part of what's happening. There are two things that I think show up in this film that give you a sense for how ubiquitous they were in this society. One is slavery and the slave trade, and the other is a huge amount of brutal violence. And I specifically actually asked Sam this question in a conversation because I said, you know, the one thing I find is conspicuously missing in this Berserker raid is rape. I would imagine that in real life, there were women being raped in this situation. And it's like alluded to in the film, you know, some women are being like manhandled and tossed over shoulders mm. and whatever there is a scene there is a moment in the background where there is a, a man preparing to rape a woman oh so there you go so it, it, yeah, yeah there's so much going on i even missed it but anyways to not be long-winded about it i actually thought that the fact that you can't even focus on any particular moment of violence until the camera and the script want you to focus on it such as the barn burning which i'm sure we'll talk about i think that actually just displayed how much violence there was not just in these raids but in this society in general so i really liked the way they showed that by not even allowing you to focus on anything katie what did you think i think the brutality is generally realistic in that there was so much brutality constantly in these societies and uh so that makes the film in a certain way feel honest to what's going on and Honest in regards to who our, for all intents and purposes, hero is. Amleth is, as a child, we see him commit his first act of violence by cutting off the guy's nose, which then comes back yeah. over and over and over again. <laughs> and then he gets away, and we see what kind of man he's become within the first five to ten minutes where mm. we see him rowing the boat, and then he uh, participates in the what I liked to think of as the we're getting hyped ritual <laughs> of like, we are just getting prepared to murder some fuckers here. Oh yeah. Murder furries. Yes. And then you see him go and his body language, how he kills people with, there's a casualness 
to it, but also artful. Like when he he comes around the corner of the house and he's there's that guy wearing that the conical hat or whatever. And he like catches him and pins him up against the wall with the knife and then slowly continues walking and slits the guy's throat as he continues his journey. Like it's almost balletic, which I'm sure is a lot due to Egger's choreography, but it's very indicative of how fundamental violence and bloodshed was for this character and it's viscerally affecting every single time every single time somebody gets hurt somebody dies something happens that is violence it is affecting to the viewer or it should be at least it's not bloodless like playing call of duty or something like that where the death just doesn't feel impactful in this film all the deaths feel impactful you are so viscerally reminded of the cost of human life in this. So I think it's a necessary part. If you're going to tell a story about the Vikings, if you don't have that brutality, you aren't telling a good story about the Vikings because it's just not accurate in any way. Dave, what did you think? I loved it. <laughs> I'm getting <laughs> choked up over here. <laughs> well, the, the, the scene that I was going to bring up, and this is kind of taking us further on, but it's in the scene where Fjolnir is interrogating his slaves and he has them all lined up and he just randomly kills like three of them. I know not, nor care not, if that slave aided in the death of my son. But this is the end you will all meet if you speak not what you know. No? It's very Schindler's List. Very Schindler's List, but it's also entirely within his power and not to be questioned, but at the same time, there's some guy who's probably leaning against a spear watching this whole thing, and he's like, oh man, if he kills all the slaves, my job is going to get so much shittier. (laughs) Yeah. Who's going to clean the outhouse? It's like, man, stop. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to do that work. Exactly. Like, what a stupid waste of slaves. Yeah, fine. Your son's dead, whatever. But like, it's, it's a part of life. It is based on the actual use of or the threat of violence. And that's how you, this whole thing operates. In terms of this, the the raid on the village, just looking at the movements of all the berserkers and everything, they're all super duper strong because they've gotten themselves so hyped up through screaming at each other the night before. You know, we can get into the whole, the berserkers were actually real and they thought they were bears or wolves and behaved like that on the battlefield. And um, where you saw, Katie, a certain artfulness in Amleth dispatching five, six, seven dudes in pretty quick succession. What I saw was that he's extremely practiced. Like, this is what these guys do for a living. This Mm -hmm. is not the first time they've done it. They're the best at what they do. Viking raiders were (laughs) very, very tough. Just overwhelming the settled peoples that they were raiding. And it's not like it's a, a battle between equals in any way. I mean, the film does not try to make this look as if it's as if there is any doubt that Amleth and his, his sword bros are going to come through, but it's just the bluntness and the regularity of the, of the violence, I thought, that, that I felt was super duper accurate and just great. You know, you don't see movies that are this brutal 
but don't glorify it and don't really comment on it very much. The movie's not asking you to feel one way or the other about it. The movie's just telling you, accept it. It is very agnostic about the violence that it's showing you. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty matter of fact. I have a question that I need answered by Dave before I lead into another point about this. We don't get to see how Amleth gets brought into this community. I'm assuming the Berserkers are just the tip of the spear warriors of that particular group that he became part of, right? They have a village, they have a society somewhere. But my question is, were the Berserkers freemen or were they some kind of slave? Is he being indoctrinated or forced to do what he's doing in any kind of way? Short answer is we don't know. Okay. But there's not like a village of berserkers who do this all the time, like war furries or what have you. <laughs> Norse cultures and many, many, you know, we, we we used to call them Germanic cultures, but, you know, the barbarians who were running around Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire, many mm-hmm. of them had tip-of-the-spear warriors like this who just, some people believe they took hallucinogenics, other people just thought that they would get themselves hyped up or believe that they were transforming into animals and go crazy on the battlefield. They are imbued with the animal power. Sure. In some way. Yeah, and Norse and Scandinavian religious beliefs were, were very associated with totems and, and, and animals and so forth. The one thing that we do have that kind of bridges the gap between little kid of many teeth running out into the ocean and uh, and then we cut to, to Amleth as Alexander Skarsgård, still rowing, is that uh, the guy who took on the... In that scene where he is speaking Old Norse and commanding the Berserkers to change into their wolf or bear forms and they're freaking out and screaming at one another, and frankly, I could probably do that all day. Like, that that's just awesome. <laughs> if that was my job all day, I would be so happy. I'm sorry, to transform or to get other people to do it? Oh, no, just to just to scream at other yeah. men while you're getting wow. rained on with your shirt off. I was terrified every single sequence where he's either howling or screaming at the camera. I was like, damn, I don't know if he's like a method actor, but I'm like terrified of this person. He is fucking intense. Skarsgård is not a method yeah, actor. Okay. Skarsgård is credited as being a genuinely delightful human being despite portraying some really awful folks which is normal for villainous actors usually they're the nicest people (laughs) right yeah but the the old man with the the white beard who's you know portraying the ritual and taking on the role of odin you know the king of the norse gods Mm -hmm. after the battle when all of the berserkers are just exhausted and like (laughs) trying to drink water because they are so fucking spent which was Darkly comedic, I mm. thought. Mm-hmm. He uh, he pulls Amleth aside. When we found you as a cup, I knew then that you had the heart of cold iron. You know, so he's been doing this for a long time. In my reading of the the film, he he rode the boat out maybe two hundred yards, and a bunch this this bunch of reavers are right there. They're like, "Hey, you like rowing?" Well, <laughs> Keep rolling. We got it. We got to go to Russia. Boy, do we have a position open for you. <laughs> it reminded me of that. Does anybody remember the Staples commercial where like the guy is changing the prices and he's just like, and that's the last one. <sighs> and he looks, he's all satisfied. And then his manager comes up and is like, hey, I got some bad news for you. We just dropped prices again. 
and hands him like a whole new like stack of stickers. <laughs> oh, and he just goes, awesome. And he's like, just start stickering things over again. And the guy walks away going, that kid was a find. <laughs> that was that dynamic that I was picking up. The yeah. actor in that is called um, Magna Osnes. Damn. The guy from the Staples commercial? No, no, no. <laughs> oh, okay. the, the Berserker Priest that Dave was talking about initially, the Berserker Priest's name is Magne okay, Osnes, and that was his real-ass beard. What a beard. Right. That was like three or four years worth of beard right there. Hail Ragnar and Hail Ragnar's beard. We've seen some bad fake beards on this show. Oh, God. So... I realize we've skipped the very beginning of the film where Amleth is a child and he's with his king father and his mother, etc. We'll get back to that later. So don't worry, we're not going to skip the entirety of Ethan Hawke's performance in this. But just to stick with the Berserker scene for a second, because I think this unpacks a lot of the other themes in the film. First of all, again, we picked this because we wanted to try for the first time ever to be on target with something that was at least close to being out in theaters. And so we picked this before we had really seen it. And I remember, I think Katie saw it first. I did, yep. And she made the comment to me where she's like, yeah, this is a interesting one because it's kind of debatable whether it's more of a war film or a vengeance, you know, revenge story. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then I saw it and we've done borderline stuff on here before. Again, if you go back to watch Bo Trevi, Bo Trevi is a good one, right? There's no combat in it. It deals with the military. It deals with, you know, soldier mindset and a lot of psychological stuff and their relationships, but it's not traditionally a war film. This one was kind of borderline. I thought simply because it's got all these raids. It's got a lot of war fighting and a lot of violence, but there's also a lot of myth and magic in it. And so, if someone had argued to put it on DCE on our Patreon, they could have won that argument. That wouldn't necessarily have been the wrong call. But in the end, we wanted to get this to a wider audience, and that's why it ended up being on the main show. And I think it certainly qualifies. I think Robert Eggers wanted to get it out to a wider audience, too, but we saw how that worked out. Yes, definitely true. This certainly is his biggest budget production and something where he did not have final cut, and he did have to kind of compromise with the production on what the film looked like in the end. And here's the thing is this, this film was budgeted between 70 and 90 million. So it was probably closer to a hundred million at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But the box office was about 70 million, which for something like this, especially during the time when it came out, when we are like, regardless of what you think about the COVID pandemic, when we are transitioning from the idea of being quarantined to going out and doing stuff is pretty big for something like this to get that is a huge achievement in my mind. I think the the budget ballooned to 90 million because of the pandemic for mm. all the protocols that they had to put in place. And they got delayed. I think yeah. it tacked like another $30 million onto the budget. Right. And I don't think the company made this movie because it was like, we're going to make a billion dollars on this. Right. They made it because this is a prestige picture. And it shows a lot of depth and blah, 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 blah. So I think there's a lot going on on purpose in this film. And they kind of, despite not giving him final cut, he did have 
a huge input on the final product. For sure. And he's on, Eggers is on record as being happy with the final product. Right. And they did do some reshoots after the fact. He talks about that a little bit, but more to expand the characters than anything else. Right. So we're going to bring up the cinematography and the landscapes and the scenery and all that stuff. And I think there's a great introduction to that in what certainly was my favorite shot sequence in the film, but I want to see kind of what you guys think. And it's uh, right after the chapter text of Land of the Roos, which we can talk about what that means in a second, where the camera starts on the shore and is stationary, and you see the first long ship go by, and then you see the second long ship go by in the foreground, and then the camera starts moving forward and is obviously on a crane, and it makes a 90-degree turn and lands into the boat where very obviously a crane would be limited there, like it wouldn't be able to continue to move at a 90-degree angle. And so I, I didn't see this specifically, although they talk about bringing the camera onto the boat and people having to move out of the way for it, but we talked about this in 1917. I'm assuming this rig was one of those where the camera can be moved easily by a couple of people off of the crane and then onto a dolly on the ship, which is how they were able to get that shot. Yes, it is. And then as it continues, we get to the berserkers sort of creeping up to the fort. And some of the trivia shows this as a single shot raid, which is not true. If you pay attention, there are three distinct cuts or two cuts. There's three distinct shots in this raid, but still it is in a very flowing one sort of style. And I wanted to see what you guys thought about that whole shooting sequence because I found it to be phenomenal. Well, let me just jump in here right away because the ship that they are using is a replica clinker built ship. It is an actual museum worthy replica. And all of the problems that they were having with, you know, moving a camera into a ship, which is certainly not designed to have that rig at all, <laughs> especially right. when you're doing an extended shot of essentially reintroducing us to Amleth and what what he's doing. And then you introduce him, he's rowing the boat, and immediately it pans over to a guy and his kid fishing, and they just shoot him. (laughs) They just shoot him with arrows, and they're laughing about it because, I don't know, fuck them. Hilarious story. It actually took them more than one shot to get that right because the guy who plays the dad in that was all about doing a dramatic death scene because <laughs> yeah. he was a he was a stunt actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Eggers had to be like, No, you need to die like a peasant. <laughs> <laughs> and he pulls it off in the end. But, but I think that kid was the kid who plays Amleth. Only in the uh, faraway rowing shot. He's not the actor who plays Amleth. Oh, so he's just like a rowing kid. Yes, yes. They said that he was so good at rowing that that scene was his reward for being so awesome. He gets to be really on his camera. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to call attention to that. Like, it's one of only a hand, a few handful in existence. And like, as the camera is panning up to Amleth, you see these these two long pieces of wood. That is the main mast. They used to take the main mast down Mm. when they were navigating around in rivers and stuff like that, because you know. These things are difficult to navigate. There's branches and all that other stuff. And you don't need the additional complication of wind, especially when you're moving by rowing power. And it's just for not even a split second. And I'm like, 
Hats off, Robert Eggers. This is why everything that Ari Aster does, you do better. <laughs> what? I'm just going to let Dave throw that grenade in and then like close the door and walk away. What? I've got a few of my own. Don't worry. Katie jumped and then the door closed. <laughs> oh, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> I'm going to let that go because you're a guest on this show. If you were Liam or Dan, I would fucking stick you to the wall, but I'll be nice today. You can stick me to the wall, Mike. My God is a corpse nailed to a tree. <laughs> yes! Yes! One of my, that, my, my husband and I both laughed quite a lot at that because of our own upbringing. That shot, I didn't like it. What? The shot on the boat? I didn't like it. Are you serious? Liam, what is wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with me. There is. Okay, why didn't you like it? I'm going to make a prediction here, Liam. Okay. What you don't like is the smoothness of and and speed of the camera movement. Like you start off, you're between these two hedges. It it looks naturalistic. You see the longboat go by. And then the second one go by. And the second one goes by. And then the camera just moves really, real forward really quickly. It does move forward really quickly, but honestly, I think it's the 90 degree turn that really broke me. Okay. For a couple of reasons. Like this is, it's the only shot in the movie that sticks out from the rest of the film. It does? And stylistically does not work for me. Hmm. It feels very mechanical and it feels very, I don't know. It's like now we're going straight, 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 and then whip turn. And then it's going to like kind of getting bumped by the guys as they're rowing. Like, I love the shot leading up to it, pushing through those ferns, and I love the shot on the boat. That transition from the one to the other, I did not like. But the whole point is to show it's the same boat. The whole point is to allow continuity. I don't need to see that. And also, that was the DP's idea. I know, and I didn't like it. That was an idea that he he shot at Robert Eggers and was like, hey, do you think we could do this? And Eggers was like, no, but let's try it anyway. That's the thing, is it feels like a do you think we can do this kind of thing. Everything else felt like it served the film and the story and the characters. Now, what I will say about these series of shots that are long and cut together to give that impression Mm -hmm. way better than what we just watched in Outlaw King for character building. I'd agree with that. You know what I mean? Like that was my big problem with the wonder in Outlaw King Yeah, is it had no focus. It was all over the place. Right. And it really, I think, underserved the characters that you're trying to introduce in this scene. It dehumanized rather than humanized the characters, I, I think. This one, because you got to stick with Amleth, that shot coming up the longboat, once you're on the boat, you don't even know which guy you're supposed to be looking at. Right. And then it slowly picks him out of a crowd of other dudes just like him. That shot on the boat is brilliant from a character storytelling aspect Mm -hmm. because it tells you that this guy who we now know is the same kid who was special because he was the prince is now in a circumstance where he's just a face in the crowd Mm -hmm. and one of a troop of people who is doing all the exact same thing, but he's still got the amulet on. So we know it's him. Yeah, it's definitely, it's showing, not telling. Like, it's very, very clear what's happening and who he is. And I fucking love that. That was great. I just didn't, I don't like that 90 degree turn. I actually 
agree with Liam here. And I had this thought on my own when I was watching it for my third viewing this time. And I like the idea. I like where it starts. I like where it ends up. I do think, again, modestly speaking, not being a cinematographer and never, have, never having worked a camera or this kind of, you know, in, in on a film like this, I do agree that had they not committed to this 90 degree turn, which is a little bit jarring, and had they smoothed out the corner and sort of just kind of landed onto the ship as if it was like a spaceship kind of making a turn and landing, I mm-hmm. do agree that that particular part of the sequence could have been done a little smoother. It was almost a whip pan. Right. Overall, I love the idea so much that despite the fact that I also caught that, Liam, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm not going to nitpick this. I like where it starts. I like where it ends up. And I love the way the camera moves through the Berserker sequence. So overall, like, I really love the cinematography of this entire sequence as a whole. But I'll, I'll give Liam the point there that I do agree. Not going not to nitpick it. That's Liam's job. Yeah, I'll let Liam do that. Exactly. <laughs> The other thing that we haven't talked about in this sequence, and this will lead us into a longer conversation, is the female Viking warrior or shield maiden that we see in this scene. And I I did not realize that you see her more than once because it's pretty clear when you see her in the village. At the end of the raid, she is riding a horse with her shield and all her weapons and get up towards the camera, and she's yelling out orders. And it's a very, very short scene. I think you see her break in through the gates after Amleth and the Berserkers take the gate. They open the gate and then the Viking raiders on horses bust through. And I think you see her for like a split second. It is one of those elements that Liam was talking about earlier where there's so much going on in in that raid sequence that you can very easily miss it. And I just watched it last night, you know, so that's the first time that I noticed it. Right. It's obvious that she's there in that scene because she also has a speaking role. But if you go back and notice, I didn't notice till my third viewing, she is leading the longboat on the far side of the river. She is literally like standing at the front of that boat with her shield. And I didn't notice that on my first two viewings. So I just want to point out that she is in two different scenes. I want to give my thoughts about that, that aspect of it, that there is so much going on. And in my mind, that is one of the strongest aspects of the storytelling. One of my favorite authors, China Mieville, who's a British socialist who writes some of the weirdest fucking books you'll ever read. Oh, he re- he wrote the Kraken book. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I read that yeah. when I was in Iceland. That one, that one was pretty fun. Read his earlier stuff. Embassy Town, I think, is my personal favorite because who damn is that bleak as shit? Oh, I'm on board. China Mieville is an author who you read his books and in the background and descriptions, like the character is walking through a market and you hear about like the descriptions of what they are seeing could be a whole ass book in and of themselves. And that is something that Eggers is able to employ in this, which is really hard to do in film. Easy. Well, not easy. Easier to do in a novel or a short story where you can be very descriptive in one sentence but Eggers does it throughout this entire movie there are so many different stories so many different ways you could be telling this particular story that it is very impressive from a storytelling aspect being able to think of all of those different things and cram them all into the background he was very well versed 
in what he's giving us. So quick quick question to to the other three members of the group here of the war band, so to speak. What was the format that you that you all saw this? Because that's I think that that is actually pretty important, especially for a movie like this. I would have loved to have catched this in the theater, but I did not. So I missed it in the theaters and it isn't actually available to rent. So I ended up buying it. It's the first time I've bought a movie on streaming <gasps> for, it was like 1999 on Apple TV. And I was like, fuck, I better like this thing. Cause I'm spending 1999 to stream it once. It better be good. But it was on my, it's on my 4k television, big ass television in my living room. So, I mean, it's about as big and good and things like that as I could get without being in the theater. Okay. I did manage to catch it in theaters on my second viewing, and it was probably the very last showing in Oakland last week. It was the last night that it was actually playing, so I went to a little independent theater and got a couch all to myself. There were like seven people in there, and I'm glad I did. It was pretty badass. And then I saw it a third time at home just to take notes and stuff, so I, I did. I was lucky enough to get to see it in theaters which it was very impressive. I saw this maybe two weeks after it came out. My husband and I were lucky enough to have no children, and we decided to do a whole last movie weekend. So we watched a bunch of movies in the theater, and we saw it at an icon, which is, for my money, there's only five or six of them in the entire country. One of the best theaters out there. I've never had an issue with sound or projection. And I think there were maybe five or six other people in the movie with us. And it was, I was so glad because yeah, it, it, seeing it in theater was fantastic. I actually saw this with Sam on opening night. Oh, nice. And I want to say that I saw it in the same Dolby surround sound that I saw Dune in. Yes. Sit down the waterfront. I was, I was down at the waterfront. Yeah. And that was an experience because with that big of a screen, there was no doubt that I knew that there was something very specific about that, the War Maiden in the longship. I'm like, hmm, who's that? I'm going to see her again because she's like very specifically outfitted. Mm-hmm. That's how detailed the movie is. There's like a million little things going on that give you more insight into what's going on, more insight into what's happening with the characters. All of that good stuff. So I had a conversation with Sam earlier and she was gracious enough to send me uh, as much stuff through uh, both directly to me and through Dave on just scholarly papers on the Vikings and this period. And a lot of it I couldn't get into because they were 40 plus pages long about the jewelry, about uh, the way they dressed or whatever. But two of the most interesting articles were about a find, uh, an archaeological find that was originally excavated in uh, either the 1870s or the 1890s in the town of Burka in Sweden. It's on the southeastern coast of Sweden near the water. So it's a really old dig that has been gone back to and people have continued to study it. Uh, there's lots of different graves in this fortified town and different archaeological sites. But BJ581 is the famous one, and it's a little bit controversial. So it's a warrior's grave. There's a couple of horses in there. There are lots of weapons and other artifacts. And then you have this sort of high-class, noble-looking warrior uh, skeleton that's buried in this grave. And so we've known that for a long time. 
In the 1970s, the studies on the bones, I forget who the researcher was, but they determined that it was a woman. And that study was kind of ignored for 40 or 50 years until recently. And then in, I want to say 2016, somewhere around there, they actually did DNA sequencing of a couple of the bones of the skeleton and confirmed through DNA analysis that this was a biologically female person. And that caused a whole shitstorm of controversy in the archaeological world because basically this was accepted as being a warrior's grave for, you know, close to a hundred years. And then once speculation and then confirmation came out that it was a woman, all kinds of people came out trying to say, well, then she wasn't a warrior or the stuff didn't belong to her or she wasn't from that region, et cetera, et cetera. I will link a lot of these articles. You can read about the controversy for yourself. But basically, there's this long-standing controversy of did Vikings have these shield maidens and female warriors that fought alongside men, as well as you can see some of this in myth as the Valkyries are depicted as what we would think of as women, although as you'll see in this conversation, we're not 100% sure of how gender fluidity worked in the Viking cultures a thousand years ago. It's quite possible that they saw things as one gender with a bunch of different sub varieties within that. It's quite possible that they saw things as three genders and we really don't know for sure. So there's a lot of speculation and there is a lot of modern kind of post-Christian bias that comes in where we're trying to apply our understanding of gender to this culture, and we're really not sure. Also, this is one skeleton and one site that has been DNA sequenced to be confirmed that it was biologically female. There are like 1,100 well-researched sites in, I believe, in Scandinavia that have had no DNA sequencing. And so it would be very interesting to see what percentage of these quote-unquote warriors are actually women. So I think what Eggers is doing, and he he references the Burka warrior as as it's known, and he references this dig site and talks about it. And obviously they took it upon themselves to make the interpretation of, yeah, what if this group of berserkers was led by a female warrior, or at least what we would look at as a female warrior. And so they decided to put that in the film. So it's a very interesting conversation to have. It's some interesting reading that you can do on your own. And it was a really, really fascinating reading. And thanks, Sam, for sharing both the articles and her own paper that she did on this. Following up on that really quickly, and I know I said that I was just going to let you have this one, but like there's <laughs> a lot of reinterpretation that goes along with archaeology. A lot of that is textual, but a lot of the stuff is like what they did with new scientific techniques with the Burka warrior. There's still a lot of debate on this subject. It's it you know it's fairly controversial. I think that in conversation you mentioned Dan that the the paper on the Burka warrior was one of the most cited, referenced, and read of any scientific research paper to come out in 2016. And there yeah, were like in 2017, it was the 43rd most read research paper out of like 2.2 million, if I remember correctly. So yeah. it was like a lot of people were reading this particular paper. I remember when that happened and I read, you know, like the the summary. Yeah. Eggers is being really deliberate and saying, hey, this find inspired this character in the movie. But what would be interesting when we have the Northman cinematic universe in a couple of years here, 
And we have the Northmen 2, 3, and 7. Keep dreaming, Dave. Keep dreaming. It's Northen time. It would be interesting to see, like, because there's ongoing archaeological investigations into this, and there are many more dig sites that are being re-examined. So Mm -hmm. this Burka warrior may not be the only person who was a warrior. And uh, basically, it's the stance of many reasonable archaeologists that this stuff lines up with the ancient stories of the sagas. There are shield maidens and war maidens and all of them. And they may not be as common as they are in the Vikings TV show, but they're not unheard of. It was a possible path for women at the time, not to mention trans men who have existed in all forms of culture and certainly could have been the case here where oh you're recognized as a man because you do xyz and that's what performing your gender is in that culture we're gonna come back to that when we talk about the he witch by the way mm-hmm. oh yeah you can't you can't know and that's both what's so frustrating and fascinating about this stuff because it's like oh there's infinite possibilities in some ways well one thing i i did want to bring up i like robert eggers as a filmmaker watching the interviews that i saw with him on this subject i don't uh, this is gonna be weird okay (laughs) the way he phrased it because he did reference like the the vikings tv shows he was like where there's a lot of these women warriors he was like it's not historically accurate there was one that we know of so we put her in this movie that's who that character is based on and i'm like I love that even though there is one, you felt that that representation was important in your movie. And I dig that. I like that a lot. I think that's cool. I don't know that I love, I wasn't sure if I was getting a little bit of a tone from him on the subject of being like, that's just not historically accurate. I felt that same way. When there's so much controversy around it, I'm like, I mean, okay, you put the one that we know of in there, which, all right, that's important. But like, don't be shitty. And here's the way to think about it is how many thousands of Viking warriors were there in actuality over the centuries of Viking warriors. How many graves have we found of those Viking warriors and what are the percentages and blah, 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 blah. And he also mentioned something about, I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but like penalties for homosexuality and things like that. Penalties for wearing clothing of the opposite gender. Mm-hmm. That's what he talks about. That was the one. Again, I don't have any of this data. He was working with all of these researchers, so I assume that he knows kind of what he's talking about and is speaking from a place of knowledge. But I don't know. So those are some questions that I have and feeling a little feeling kind of a way about that. Well, that that's fine because I actually think that these discoveries, the archaeological discoveries give out more questions than they do answers because while you can determine, for example, biological sex through DNA, if you're lucky, if the DNA is still there and if you can sequence it properly, this doesn't answer all of the cultural gender norm questions that like we would have, which we're looking at with our, in our case, American bias and anybody else in Scandinavia has their own biases. And most scientists and archaeologists in their papers, you can read about, they acknowledge that, right. you know, the, the smart ones are like, look, it's difficult because we're looking at this in one way. We don't know if this was a trans person in their time. We don't know if this was a woman who was accepted as a woman warrior. We don't know if she was accepted as a man or some kind of non-binary person. The other questions that come up 
which have been brought up in other graves is, is this even the outfit and weapons and related items related to this person or were they just thrown in there, which I guess is speculation. It has happened in other graves. I was going to say, does that happen a lot? Is it just like everybody's thrown all their best shit into this grave? Well, so here's a couple of interesting peculiarities that I read in the paper. First of all, one quote was brought up that was said by archaeologists that was, remember, the dead don't bury themselves. They don't get to choose what kind of outfit and what kind of things they're buried with. Someone else is making those decisions for them. One. Two, I believe in this particular village, and again, Sam can correct me later if I'm wrong and we'll put all the research out there, but I believe two out of 49 uh, warriors, quote unquote, that they found buried with, you know, armor and weapons and shields, etc., had any kind of combat related injuries on their bones. This particular dig, the bones were pristine. They did not look like they had been injured in combat, as well as, again, 47 other ones. And so there's a cultural aspect of this, too, especially being a high class person who had like expensive, like these armor piercing uh, tipped arrows and expensive gear. Like, again, you can read the details. There was a gaming board there, like a war gaming board <laughs> nerd buried with her, which is something associated with with strategy and someone who would have had like a leadership role potentially. But we even don't know if in that culture, this person was being buried as a quote unquote warrior class, but had they actually participated in fighting and in combat, we don't know that. And so it's really interesting as you read these research papers, you have to stay really, really objective and not put Mm -hmm. in your own wishes. And it's like, there are certainly a crowd of people that don't want, it to be real that there were viking female warriors but there are a shit ton of people including me that i'm like that's badass i i I certainly hope that was the case but you can't bring that bias in with you when you're like an archaeologist and you're looking at a dig site and you're reading papers right you have to be objective about it so there's so many questions and so many unknowns that it's really difficult to get to the bottom of it right so eggers made a choice to depict this we don't know how historically accurate it is, is is what I gathered from all the reading I did. Not to mention the fact that there is a certain amount of we are much, much closer to the the American Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. There were multiple women who were pretending to be men or trans men who participated in the American Civil War because it was a time where they didn't have like extensive bodily exams in order to get into the army. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you look good enough. Let's go. Huh? Go die for your country. Yay. Yeah, we need bodies, as they say in the military. Yes. So this is the time, obviously, far, far, far before then, where it could be either one. And because we are so far out historically, that's the fascinating thing is to not just get caught up in the idea of like, well, it could be within our standards today of what we think of as appropriate for Viking warriors, but also to try mm. to think beyond that and accept that it's it's not just a one-way street, that we really do have no idea of what their culture was like on, on on certain aspects. You know, we only get glimpses into something that's that old. One could say there were myriad possibilities, maybe? There were myriad possibilities. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> oh, you fuckers. You fuckers. All I was going to say was, with all of the uncertainty, I think that's what I didn't like about Egger's statement, that it seemed to have so much certainty behind what he was saying on something that is so controversial 
so up in the air and so cloaked in things that I'm like, oh, I don't, I didn't hear anybody like criticizing you for. It seems defensive. For putting this person in or not putting more of this person in. Honestly, it was like, sir, no one fucking noticed that it was a lady. I mean, maybe he's just preemptively making comments for all the like bro crowd that's going to come after him for depicting that. Who knows? That's what it felt like. It's defensive. That's possible. Dave, what did you think? Well, here, here's what I think. This is a character who you blink and you're not going to see them. Right. I did the blink. Yeah, precisely. And what Eggers is talking about here, especially with that quote that he had, is he's gone out of his way to say like, hey, this is the best research that we currently have. In a way, it's very similar to what was going on with the Vikings back in the late 50s. It's the best archaeological evidence that they had at the time that informed the production of that movie and the stuff that has held up over time like you know the ships and some of the look of of the weaponry and armor and stuff like that that holds up because that archaeology was accurate the stuff that we have now like he made a specific decision to put the the burka warrior in there and he's also reacting to hey i like the vikings tv show but people in Iceland fucking hated it. Mm. Oh, they I bet. thought it was just terrible. Interesting. They're like, hey, why don't you fight a guy who's wearing a helmet from the conquest of Mexico five centuries late? Like they're 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 just killing it. Right. And that's the sort of a historicity is what Eggers is reacting to there. Because every second person in that show is a shield maiden. Mm. Oh, okay. And there's no evidence for that. Not that we have currently. Right. Not yet. Now, as we go deeper into this and we re-examine the, the, the bodies and we re-examine the textual analysis and we realize like, hey, Christians don't want <laughs> female warriors. As we go deeper into this, maybe that attitude will change and we'll get another Viking movie with that reflects that archaeology. It's an ongoing thing. Yeah. And let me just say that as as the partner of someone who works in genetics and as someone who's I think Sam even mentioned this in her article <laughs> in the dream world where DNA sequencing for 1100 graves is just you just have grant money to do that with everyone. Then, yes, they would do that to everyone. But I think the point here is fun science, because right. then we could get to the bottom of this and find out what percentage of these 1100 grave sites of warriors were biologically women right but like all that stuff takes money and dna sequencing is expensive so like we should continue to look into this stuff yes i'd feel bad if i didn't mention that i was like oh that, that rubbed me a little weird i appreciate you mentioning it liam because it means i didn't have to as the token woman on the podcast well as anyone who's listened to our terminator episodes we all know that the representative of uh feminism here is liam on the podcast i mean everybody knows that i speak for the women <laughs> that is that is my function here i'm here to give good hugs and uh i i speak for the women i'm like the lorax but it's for the women yeah <laughs> so to go back to the beginning the film opens in 895 ad with king Arvindil returning home from pillaging and that is Ethan Hawke. And I feel like from the conversation that we've had so far, Ethan Hawke was a controversial choice. And Nicole Kidman, his wife, is hesitant to see him, but asks very interestedly after his brother uh, Fjolnir 
Played by uh, the wonderful Klaus Bang. Yes, yes, he did. He gives such a good performance in this. Yeah, he's he's really really great in this movie. He he got his big break a couple years ago when he was in the BBC version of Dracula, which had its mm. high points and low points. But he's great in this movie. Yeah, he's really good. There are no weak points at all in the casting of this film. And I I say that not being a particular fan of Nicole Kidman. She's fine. I've had to watch Moulin Rouge way too many times (laughs) to to really appreciate Nicole Kidman. But but she's great in that movie. I am not throwing shade at Nicole Kidman for being great. (laughs) She's a fantastic actress. Anyone who's seen The Hours should know she's a fantastic... Oh, oh, okay. She is good in it. I will give you that. So, Ethan Hawke gives a... Very short, like he's only in the first little bit of this film, but incredibly impactful performance as someone who's been watching Ethan Hawke since he first got his start in acting like this is such a pinnacle performance of his and he every second he is doing his best. 100%. Yeah, I think we're in the middle of what will come to be known as the Ethan hawke I agree. Because we're right in the middle of a trifecta here of Moon Knight, the Northman, and he's going to be, isn't he in that movie, The Black Phone? He's the the villain in that? Yeah. No, First first Reformed was his big movie to come back. I fucking hated that movie. I'm just saying, this is a big year for Ethan Hawke. He's got three very high profile films. He does. Originally, Amleth is played by Oscar Novak. That's the young, the younger Amleth. And Hawke has these insanely intense moments with him. And there's not a lot given in the beginning as to what is going on. So if you are familiar with the mythology of the time and what we now consider tropes, like for me, it was obvious from the beginning of Nicole Kidman asking Auravandil, Will your brother not grace us with his presence? Think not on Fjolnir. He'll soon be with us. It's like, oh, she's fucking Fjolnir. I see how this is. I see what's going on here. Man, I love being dumb. I didn't catch that for a second. I'm just like, do-do-do. Oh, I got that immediately. <laughs> the sagas were not known for being subtle. <laughs> no, no, right? Like, Just like Ovid. Like, Ovid is not fucking subtle with Greek mythology. This is the same way. And that's standard for this kind of story. So... I kind of saw the beats of what was coming, but some of the best moments in this film, especially in regards to the first act, are Willem Dafoe and the scenes between Willem Dafoe, Ethan Hawke, and Oscar Novak. Like that, and that also helps define the spiritual aspect of this culture because. This is not the kind of culture where you go to church on Sundays and don't think about it any other time. Like your spirituality and the mythology is woven into what you wear, what you think your everyday life is part of that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big things that I noticed on this latest viewing was like, first off, Fjolnir is a bastard brother. Yes. So he is... Uh, Ethan Hawke's uh, they, his last name is Raven King which which alludes to the fact that he's like his god is Odin 
and the Ravens keep coming back all the time. There's a mm-hmm. moment with the Raven that, you know, snaps Amleth back out of his, his raiding ways and back into the story. And they free him from the final imprisonment. Yeah. Very useful, those Ravens. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Ravens are smart, Liam. Yeah. You hear stories online about like, oh, I trained this this Corvid to bring me $20. I've actually been keeping an eye out for ravens in my backyard that I can like feed to keep an eye on my chickens because that mm. is a legit thing is people feed ravens because if a hawk or something comes into your area, the corvids will be like, Mm-mm, get the fuck out of here. I'm not sure what the correct pronunciation is here, but Odin's ravens are Hugin and Munin. Just for the record. Close enough. Thank you. Well, he's got a few more in this. Yeah. But um, the god that uh, that that Fjolnir worships is Freyr, the, the god of the harvest and the god of, uh, of fertility and peace, ironically, which kind of goes against everything that he does. Which is movie. saying something. Whereas for Amleth, he is much more violence and redemption and the contradiction between those two gods is saying a lot, I think. Liam, what did you think about the setup of the story and the characters? Again, I know not just you, but Dave and Katie are pretty familiar with Hamlet. Did you see Gudrun? 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 Gudrun. We're going to go with Gudrun. Nicole Kidman's character. Did you see that uh, coming? You know, I had I had an inkling, but I was just taking everything at face value to, to start. Okay. Where I I really started to get suspicious, or not suspicious of the original intent, but when he was like, "Oh yeah, I gotta, I have to go save my mother," I'm like, "She's got a kid with this dude, <laughs> and has this whole life, and you're gonna come in and like blow all of that up." I don't know that her reaction to seeing you is going to be what you think it is. And I knew that was going to happen. I didn't necessarily know it was going to be the big reveal of like, oh, yeah, I told him to kill you, too. Why are you still here? (laughs) Well, and she was told that he was in the ocean. Right. (laughs) No, no's friggin threw him in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, Is that that in the sea? Yeah. It's hanging like a stone. I'm sorry, that's uh, Finner the Nose Stub. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought that once they went with uh, Fjolnir the Brotherless, they were going to go with Finner the Noseless, but apparently they decided not to. I don't know why. No, Nose Stub. He's got a little bit. Just a little bit. He did not have a little bit. He got the whole goddamn thing off. <laughs> Look, we all knew what kind of a guy Amleth was going to be because the first guy who tried to beat him up got a bloody nose. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Supposed to leave those for Liam. Mine are better than that. <laughs> God. But I think one of the most interesting aspects that this early part of the film adds to the film in general is the mystical understanding that we gain from seeing Ethan Hawke, who comes home uh, mortally wounded. Like he knows that his death is imminent. The enemy has a taste of my liver. I love how he describes that. Oh, his whole acting in this is so fantastic. Especially his death scene. Yeah. That, oh, we're, we're talking about like the bluntness and the brutality of this movie. They kill him the way you kill a boar. And he reacts the way that you expect a king of that era to react, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> Nicole Kidman calls him like simple minded later. 
it's so great. <laughs> right. Because of, I, and you get the sense it's because of his brutality, because he seemed to be someone who's constantly going on voyages and pillaging and all that shit. Yeah. Can I ask, what was the problem with Ethan Hawke? Why does everybody want to kill him? I get that they were doing it, but they were like, oh, he was a bad person. No, it's not that he's a bad person. It's She cites that he was a slaver and he was weak. But Gudrun reveals that she was taken as a slave. Yeah. And so she has resentment towards him for dominating her and forcing her to give birth to a child, which is absolutely understandable. But what's his fucking face is taking slaves? She was specifically raped. Right. By... King Orvindil, and she tells Amlet that he was a product of rape. So I think she has plenty of reasons to have grievances with Ethan Hawke's character. Fair. Right. And Fjolnir, being a bastard, covets the power of his brother, which is a tale as old as any tales we've ever told. Because I'm not making that Disney statement. Right, but I feel like they both kind of tell him that he's, like, trying to get vengeance for the wrong dude. But Fjolnir is doing all that same shit, just not to her. That's a big difference. Oh, yeah. It's not like he's a good dude. No, no. No. Okay, I just wanted to get that out there, that everybody's like, no, I'm the good guy. And like, or not everybody in the in this discussion, but in the movie, it's like, I'm the good guy. Your father was the piece of shit. That doesn't actually hold up. So here's here's something that's important to to note. Gudrun says in, in the fateful confrontation where like she reveals everything like she's the chief strategist behind all of this Mm -hmm. which was by the way a a, a not uncommon role for powerful women to play of playing different sides off against one another exactly you see that in the sagas very frequently and i talked about it in the outlaw king with um his wife yeah where she says this is my job i'm supposed to be the one who's thinking about all this shit exactly and she's she's also running the household while the woman of the household is going to be running the economic activity of the home, essentially the 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 manor house, while the husband's off doing doing the war. You know, when, yeah, sure, what what have you? The 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 only proper job for a man, apparently. <laughs> but there's uh, Gudrun looks at the the king character as essentially being dishonest with himself because she contrasts that with Fjolnir, who is always honest, essentially, and is honest with himself to. Gudrun, there is no difference between what Ethan Hawke was doing and what Amleth was doing. It's just about loot. It's just about killing and, and, and getting your rocks off. That's, that, that is what motivates men like that. And the movie comes down pretty hard, especially with Amleth, by saying it's not wrong that you're killing. It's wrong that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not killing the people you're supposed to be killing. You're just doing this to do this. That's why there's a difference. And it's a difference that we in the 20th, 21st century aren't going to notice. Like, Liam, you, you point out like, hey, there's not all this much difference between these guys. But when you see Klaus Bang with Nicole Kidman, there's a different relationship than what she has with Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke just wants to basically turn the, the boy into a soldier as quickly as possible so he can be king. Which is dumb. Well, he also, like, when we see Ethan Hawke, he's already dying. Yeah, he's out of time is the problem. Right. He knows that he doesn't have the time to, like, sort of usher the boy along and groom him to be king as he would want. He was like, no, fucking, like, let's let's pick this up. We got to speed this process up now. 
because I'm dead at the end of it. Yeah. And I think with Nicole Kidman, there is an aspect of choice in this. And I really appreciate Robert Eggers for including that because I can absolutely understand a woman who is taken captive and enslaved and then sexually assaulted and forced to give birth and forced to be the proper wife and all that bullshit. My whole little bit of a grudge. Maybe just a little, just a little bit. Yeah, I could see how she might For be sure. pissed about it. Whereas Ethan Hawke's character doesn't see that because to mm-hmm. him, this is just how life works. And then she finds yeah. a man who has also been in some ways rejected by society, who cares about her and nurtures her and is affectionate towards her without enslaving her that will be very appealing yeah and i don't think eggers shies away from that i think it is a little bit deeper because obviously this is amleth's story but by giving nicole kidman and gudrun that moment where she explains it all to amleth as i was watching that i was like okay maybe i kind of understand where you're coming from girl so what you guys are talking about i think and I'm glad that Liam brought this up and that we're going back and forth on who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. Aren't they all kind of shitty? This guy's raping, killing, you know, another person. This film is all about perspective. It really dives into the whole, this is the protagonist, but not necessarily the good guy. And this is the antagonist, but not necessarily the bad guy. It depends on how you look at it and it depends on who you are. They unveil the reasoning and the context behind that just one layer at a time yeah. so that you're sort of being led down a path. Also, Ethan Hawke is like super likable and he's not really playing it as a villain, right? So it's very easy to get lured into this sense that like, oh, he's the good king. He's raising his son. He's got this wife. And then he's betrayed, right? And you see that through Amleth's point of view. And then as the story turns things around and flips it on its head, you start to really wonder, well, who is the real good guy or bad guy in this? And they do that right off the bat. It's not like you have to wait till the end of the movie. Now, granted, with Queen Gudrun, you do. That does happen at the end of the film. But if we just go back for the last time in this conversation to the berserker assault on the village in that scene, it was incredible to see the brutality with which they depict Amleth and the Berserkers exacting violence on this village. By the end of it, they are corralling civilians, including babies and children and women and old people, basically anyone they did not want to take as a slave, locking them into a barn, lighting it on fire and burning them alive. That is some Nazi World War II level atrocities that like would be a war crime in any country in any modern war. And they do emphasize it, the camera work and, and the choreography, you know, lingers on that barn door as they're banging it down, trying to get out. Yeah. And so it, it does not shy away from highlighting that moment for you. Here's where I want to take one of what I think is the strengths of the film in terms of kind of showing everybody being shitty and you having to make up your own mind as to who you're rooting for and who you think the quote unquote good guy is, which I don't really think there is one in this movie. It's all about perspective. But if we go back to that scene right before they burn the barn, you can see one of the Roos girls, this beautiful blonde Olga, who is being captured Anya Taylor-Joy, of course, this is her introduction. And 
as she's approaching one of the soldiers, she comes up to him with a loaf of bread as if she's trying to negotiate for her life and kind of say, here, I, I can bake. Here's some food. You know, please don't kill me, whatever. And when the guy gets close to her, she pulls out a dagger and tries to kill him. Right. And they grab her. The dagger flies out of her hand. I was. I thought that was her. Yeah, that was her. Uh-huh. I that was surprised her. they didn't kill her right then. But at the same time, I get it. She's she's young. She's pretty. They're keeping her because she's valuable. They can sell her off to whoever they want. And she's feisty. That's a valuable thing in their kind of culture. Right. So we're introduced to this character here. Now, I haven't made up my mind on whether this is a plot hole or not. I want to hear you guys' opinion. You go through the whole raid. And then as they're wrapping things up, the slaves have been bound and the longboats are leaving for various locations. And Amleth comes up with his plan, right? He finds out that these slaves are going to Fjolnir and he decides he's going to infiltrate this boat and... He's going to impersonate a slave. He cuts his hair. He brands himself. Such a huge loss of stature. Oh, yeah. I feel like it would be unconscionable in that time. And that's part of the the heroism that that's how dedicated he is to his vengeance and seeking justice is that he is willing to give up his own status to achieve it. Yeah. It shows you how committed he is to his vengeance, but here's my problem. He infiltrates this boat as a slave. It's very clear from the beginning that Olga flags him as a Northman. Your sheep's clothing does not disguise you Northman. What say you, spellspeaker? You wish to be a slave. Hide your cunning. Show the shepherd you are a sheep. I'll show the shepherd his death. As the story progresses, and they are enslaved together, and they're in Fjolnir's uh, farm, etc., it becomes clear that he wants to help her, he wants to help her flee, and eventually this develops into a romantic relationship, which then develops into him giving him heirs. It becomes a huge part of the story. Here's my problem, and I don't know if this was in Egger's original script, because he was told to kind of dumb it down and make the story a little more straightforward, and we already have one sort of big twist with a woman in the film Betrayal, but you're telling me that this girl, who recognizes this guy as one of the Northmen, who burned down and murdered most of her village, killing probably some of her friends and family in the process. There isn't even a second of animosity. There is not even going to be a scene where she attacks him and tries to fight him or tries to get angry at him and says, you motherfucker, you killed my cousin, my aunt, whatever. And then maybe, you know, throughout the story, because of survival, because of et cetera, they decide to work together and then they fall in love and then the story goes on and I mean, they did not spend one second on her questioning whether she fucking hated this guy who came in and like Nazi raided her village or not. I want to see what you guys think. To me right now, I see that as a little bit of a plot hole. I'm like, it wouldn't have taken much. I could buy the end result of them being together and having children, but I don't see how you avoid a scene where that is at least brought up or questioned. What do you guys think about that? I think it takes place completely off screen, basically. Okay. All of that stuff is taking place while they're on the boat. And when the boat is about to founder, he's trying to protect her, you know, from falling off the ship because this is the, presumably the first time she's been in the North Atlantic. But he hits his head and she winds up protecting him. Right. Protecting him and keeping him on the boat and preventing him from being washed away. As opposed to like, fuck this guy who killed everyone I know. I'm just going to throw him off the boat. Well, he also had some help. Sure. And it's his job. 
Okay. <laughs> so with how common a way of life this was as far as like raiding and so on and so forth, not that it's like, oh, no biggie, but how unexpected was it? It like, was it viewed as that same kind of atrocity that we're viewing it with, with 21st century eyes or 20th century eyes? No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be viewed like that. It would be viewed as territorial. Like shit, it was our turn. Exactly. These are things that happen and this is my day to day life. That is a morality and a tit for tat and a cycle of violence that the movie is very much about because in passing, they're like, oh, yeah, um, Ethan Hawke's guy, you know, his brother killed him, but his brother got pushed out by King Harold, you know, so he killed his brother for no reason. Wasn't that stupid of him? Ha ha ha. Like, so, so the Norse, the Norse are fighting with one another at the same time that they're fighting everybody else. And it's just, it's just crazy. It's a way of life. Right. That's why this is a, a war and a revenge movie, you know? These are the expected standards. And beyond that, I do question because they at no point in the film do they show her and Amleth in the same scene during that brutality. So there is a question of whether or not she knows that he was one of the people perpetrating that upon her village. And there's the question of now he has become a slave. And what does that mean where he goes from being a berserker who's rampaging through a village and now he's a slave. Like, what happened to him in the between times? I can see how Olga would be like, yeah, but there's so much advantage for me in engaging in this relationship. And he interests me as a partner and sexually and all of that stuff. And she does mention later, later on, I think, when they're bathing together or whatnot. Oh, mm. I know, right? <laughs> I was fanning myself, folks. That's that's what that statement was. It's snack time. <laughs> I thought I must always shield my heart in stone. I could not think I would open it to a Northman. So I think it was more of like a general kind of prejudice and not a personal like, I know what these people are like, not these are the people that burned down my village. Right. She knows what kind of person Amleth is in that where she assumes he comes from. And now he is here in this entirely different societal role. And that changes her perspective on him, rightly so. And beyond that, she desires vengeance herself for what was done to her, yep. for being taken slave, and fuck all of these people who are doing this to her. And one of my absolute favorite scenes in the whole entire film is where Fjolnir comes to rape her and she's like, I'm on my period. He's like, I don't care. And then she's like, I'm mm, going to shove my uh, blood soaked rags from my crotch in your face. I love that too. <laughs> because fuck you. And I was like, girl, that's pretty good. That's how you do. That's how you keep a man from raping you because he's going to remember that every single time. And it was then totally believable that Fjolnir never comes back afterwards. He's like, oh, you're gross. I'm like, yeah, that's what you do, girl. You make yourself gross. I laughed out loud <laughs> and clapped during that scene in the theater. There's a lot of unexpected humor in this movie. As there is in all Eggers films, in my mind. I'm still convinced The Lighthouse is a romantic comedy. We got a great scene with Willem Dafoe and farts. That's how you know it's a Robert Eggers film. Exactly. <laughs> 
do we want to talk about the he witch because that gets yes that takes us back into so there's a bunch of scenes like this there's a he witch there's the scenes with the valkyrie there's the mound dweller most of our films do not have a metaphysical aspect to them and this one does and it informs so much of the action and the rest of the movie very accurate for the time frame because for people whether you are talking about greeks or native americans or anyone who lived in that time frame the metaphysical and the real was far closer than it is today and they were far more entwined with each other and it is very entwined in this film oh Yeah. yeah i mean there are so many sequences where there is a practical excuse or reason for what you're seeing because you're like, oh, these characters are participating in a religious ceremony or, or whatever it is that includes psychedelics. And so when they're floating or when they're seeing things, you're assuming that it's an actual hallucination caused by psychedelics, as you see in the young Amleth scene, as we see uh, at the end when they, quote unquote, poison, it's not poison, but when they poison the guards and everybody's throwing up and tripping etc but you also see that with the mound dweller scene yeah not just because it is a what the hell this guy is a undead you know zombie coming to life and swinging a sword draugr but because at the end of that sequence he goes up to the mound dweller and the body is there and it's just sitting there and then he takes a sword and i remember looking at that scene going so what just happened this whole time? <laughs> right. Was it his imagination? I don't know the answer to that. I love that. I thought that shit was great. It was an amazing scene. I just don't know what it means. Was it an examination of his personal struggle in accepting his role in this society of taking this like and understanding that upon taking this means he has to kill Fjolnir. And he has been thinking and coming to that point since his dad died. But this is the true exception on taking this, that he is not just a berserker who commits violence in service of his clan. He is going to kill his uncle and his mother, his brother. He is going to commit some serious murders which takes a lot out of a man, I would say. Yeah, the one thing that I really like that you just said, Katie, is like equating that big hulking guy who is Bjornsson, the the guy who played the mountain in Game of Thrones, who shows yes. up later, who shows yes. up later in a game I wish we still played regularly. That's not the Mound Dweller, by the way. Oh, it's not? No. The Mound Dweller's Ian White. It's a different different actor. Okay, what was that game called? Because Eggers talks about it and he just like it trips off his tongue, and I was like what? I think the closest thing you get to it is hurling. The The Viking sport is called Natalikir. Yes. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It literally means ball game. <laughs> it wasn't just me who saw that guy and was like, that's the mountain from Game of Thrones, right? Because there's only a couple men in the world who are that big. Yeah. <laughs> and we're actors. And it's played very, very similar to hurling. Yeah, that, that, that game scene was pretty cool. <laughs> Seems pretty cool. People are almost brutally murdered and horrifically injured throughout, and it's fine. It's like looking back at the Aztec uh, rubber ball and hoop game where people were getting killed. It's still like sports a cool... from that time were pretty fucking brutal. But what, what is it? What is it with the mountain and head trauma, man? Like he's <laughs> he's about to he's about to crack open this kid's head for reasons. Even today, there there is that 
Buzkashi, which is a Central Asian sport in which horse-mounted players like try to place a goat carcass. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. still played in Afghanistan today. It's still played in Afghanistan. It's still played throughout the uh, throughout Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Like, oh yeah, you, yeah. You man. ride a horse and you're dragging a fucking goat carcass around, and like shit gets real Jesus. in that game. And that's totally what it made me think of. Is it's like this is. This is a sport that people can watch that is akin to battle, but not quite there. Right. Yeah. Even though most of the people involved died. <laughs> yeah. Or got horrifically injured. But here's the thing to consider is that they were all slaves. Therefore, it's acceptable losses. Yeah. Right. Despite the fact that a lot of them probably could have been actual warriors, they aren't considered that, so therefore, who gives a shit about them is kind of how it's thought of. At least that's how it's portrayed. Just to throw in a couple of really cool bits of trivia. So Bjornsson, the big guy in the game who did play the, he was one of the actors who played the mountain in Game of Thrones. Yeah, he was the second one, I think, right? He was the second or third, but he was the final actor. Third he became last, the zombie. Yeah. He's like, you know, he he definitely lasted the longest. He is famously a strong man. He's actually a professional basketball player for a long time when he was much, much skinnier. And then he got into powerlifting and he broke a thousand year old lifting record that I think involves carrying a, a mast three meter log. That It's like, yeah, it's this crazy thing. Anyways, he broke a thousand year old strength record. Just so you know what kind of man this person is. Oh, he looks like it. It gets better, too, because the uh, you know, you have to carry this mast essentially mm -hmm. 50 feet or so and the guy who set the record a thousand years ago died doing it doing it <laughs> that's amazing so not only did he beat the record but he survived the record oh and he's doing fine live to tell the tale yeah he's he's, he's awesome. still acting today but to clear the record ian white is the actor who plays the mound dweller and he's seven foot one he was seven foot one when he turned 17. So oh he's God. one of those actors who is going to play a lot of monsters and stuff. And uh, right. among his other things, he played one of the engineers or the main engineer in Prometheus. So he's in the giant hulking man suit walking around. But Dave, you were going to lead us into the metaphysical. Yeah. Yeah. Tying the Mound Dweller to Amleth's fate is interesting because this is not something that he's going to be able to overpower. You know, this is probably the first problem Amleth has encountered that, you know, him and his lats can't just like bully their way through. Mm -hmm. And he has to use the weapons that are there as well as his cunning and as well as, you know, the Mound Dweller can't go into the moonlight. So he uses the, the knowledge to his advantage. And this is playing out in the mind of somebody who has probably not seen his own reflection. Eggers has been really clear that like what you look like is kind of a mystery to you. When it's night, it's night. You can't see shit. There's no mirrors. There's no mirrors. There's water. <laughs> yeah, there's water. Probably not eating the best food in the world. This is your life. It's it's just mud and blood and being cold all the time. <sighs> Nightmare. I mean, I love this stuff, but I'm really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the idea. I love discovering it and, and reading about it, but I would fucking hate being in it. Like, I can appreciate yeah. how far we have come as a society that I can go upstairs and turn my heat up and, and be warm. And all of all of the society that's portrayed in this would be like, 
damn you rich as hell <laughs> kt you were a goddess like that's like right? <laughs> that's right you walk into a room and by your magic it's now warmer right these are people who would allow their imaginations to fill in the blanks i guess you could say fill in the gaps of their knowledge right and it's not that they're stupid they just don't know what we know there is no scientific method they, right. they are trying to come up with reasons for why why does it rain? Why does lightning strike here? Why does the ground not produce the best crops this year? Like, yeah. you have to find reasons for that shit. Like I said, they're, they're not stupid. It's just, it's very difficult to pass along information on, like, what works right. in these societies. And in the meantime, your creative mind is going crazy. So it's entirely reasonable for you to be stumbling around a sacked village that you helped destroy, not feeling too great about what you just did because you're leaving all of your buddies to do the drinking and the raping. And you meet one of the Narns who tells you that you're on the wrong path and then chastises you for it. Now remember, for whom you shed your last teardrop, remember the oath to right the wrong. It's, it's entirely reasonable. It's entirely reasonable that you see a bird and that's your dad telling you to stop fucking around and kill your uncle. It's entirely <laughs> reasonable for you to, uh, to, to look at a body of a mound dweller with an awesome badass sword and <laughs> chop its head off and then put his decapitated head right up his ass. <laughs> right in the butt. Right in the butt and in there. I love that that's how you do it. That is. that I read that that is how you do it, actually. That's one of the... Burn it or put its head in its ass. Yeah. <laughs> the other aspect of this is how well they show the mythological and religious to a certain extent. Like, religion is not the right word. The ritualistic nature of the culture? Yes. Like, metaphysical is really the best word I can think of. Because, again, religion is not the best word for this because this is so much more than that in a certain way because of how different we are today rather than in 900 AD. And I would be very remiss if I did not bring up how fucking amazing Willem Dafoe is in his role in this as both, you know, we see him as the fool, which in this kind of society and for much of society afterwards, at least another six, seven hundred years, if not more than that, a fool is someone who speaks the truth to power. Mm -hmm. He whispers in the king's ear, you are not so powerful. You know, that's the old story. And Willem Dafoe plays both the fool and uh, the mage in this and shows Arvindel and Amleth, you know, the basics of their society and the most sincere truths in that they view themselves as both animalistic and human and we get to see that both when Amleth is a child, and then we see him kind of reaffirm his commitment to that with um, his experience with uh, Bjork's character, the CRS, where she points out to him, like, you are on the wrong path, and gives him his um, final tear. You fucked up. Bjork's going to come back and feed you your own tears. Yep. And then when he, he is a slave with Fjolnir... He 
runs off into the night and discovers the He-Witch. Yeah. Who is played by Ingvar Sigurdsson. And my apologies if I got that wrong. You were close. Also, I have to say this. As a Minnesotan, where our our standard <laughs> oh our goodness. standard fucking accent is a little bit Swedish-Norwegian. Mm-hmm. I was watching an interview with Skarsgård, who... You know, Skarsgård is from Sweden, and, and that was part of why this, how this movie got made, is because he was really invested and wanted to tell a, a story about his ancestors and mm-hmm. his people. And he's giving an interview, and him and Eggers are talking about the boat scene. And the way he says the word boat, which I'm sure everybody can hear it if you're not from the Midwest, that the weird boat. Oh. Oh. Yep, boat. And. I paused it and I looked at my husband, who is very Swedish and very, or no, his family is from Norway. I looked at him and I was like, that's where we get it from. He sounds Minnesotan. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it was just hilarious to me how so much of this, I was like, oh, this is how I speak and how everybody around me speaks in a certain way, even though I am in no way from that area. I'm very German and Eastern European, but the right way to say boat is boat. Boat. Yeah. Mm, okay, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. I had to bring that up. But anyway, so the Hewitch, Ingvar Sigurdsson, is channeling the dead. And that would also be such a huge part of their spirituality in that life and death is a veil. It is not a significant line in their culture, at least if their culture is in any way similar to Greek and Egyptian and any other culture of that era where life and death is much more murky than it is in today's day and age. I loved all of those sequences and that we get to see Willem Dafoe come back as a decapitated, emaciated head. He comes back as poor Yurik. I was like, yes, Willem Dafoe. Yes. And I'm sure that's why he took the role. He's like, I get to yell at people in a loincloth and be like an emaciated head. I'm down. I'm in. It is a battle flame like none other. Its name, Troikar, the undead. I love it. (laughs) One question I have, because I was wondering it through, I guess, the last third of the movie. Sure. Mm -hmm. Are Amleth's kids somebody? Yes. I mean, it's almost like we just watched the, the story of like, I don't know mary growing up and then like but you don't get to see her give birth to jesus it had that kind of importance built around it but because it's not our culture and it's not something that everybody has read the sagas i had no idea what's going on with these kids but it looked like the girl was going to be a king yeah the maiden king the maiden king so what's important is that i'm gonna go back because like this story is like all over the place but the opening incantation that opening shot of the uh, the volcano and he's invoking odin but he's also telling the tale of prince amleth and his line this is the founding of a dynasty in many ways hear me odin all father of the gods summon the shadows of ages past when the thread spinning norns ruled the fates of men they mention very cryptically, like, hey, go go to Orkney. I have people, I have kinsmen there, blah, blah, blah. There's also a Saint Olga who was sainted 
in Ukraine that may have some significance in there as well. But who I think they're going for is so there is mythology surrounding Odd the Deep Minded. According to legend, they fled to Orkney during the rise of King Harold Fairhair, the guy who kicked Fjolnir out and sent him to Iceland. Right. This Odd the Deep Minded took her own crew. According to legend, she's another one of these war maidens and raided and explored and ultimately settled down in Iceland. That's who I think they are referring to, but that's another saga. That's another story. A saga for another day. Now it's time for the breakdown, where we talk about what the objective of this film was, whether it was on target or not, and if we liked it. Liam, you haven't said much this episode. Let's throw it right at you. All right. Uh, So I believe the stated objective of this film, or at least one of them, was to make the most accurate Viking movie ever made. The, the most accurate one that could possibly be made with the information that we have now. And I've read that like the, the ritual of Amleth's coming of age is one that they have very little documentation on of any sort. So Robert Eggers said that was probably the most fabricated one of all, but even that they tried to get like the spirit of the thing along with that. I know that Skarsgård was a driving force of it. And he really wanted to make a movie on this subject. I don't know if it was specifically the story of Amleth that he wanted to tell, or if he just kind of wanted to make a general movie about Vikings that was good and accurate and did justice to it. That's about the best I can, I can say like they wanted to take this very old story that has had far reaching influence throughout Western culture ever since and put it on the big screen. And Robert Eggers loves doing really big, really weird old shit. (laughs) So this is, this did nothing to deter me from my belief that Robert Eggers is Wes Anderson for people who hate Wes Anderson, which is not a knock by the way. I fucking love it. You're not wrong. You are not wrong. He's gaining this whole like stock cast of like his, his rep company that he's building that has like, you know, the entire cast of the the witch and yes, yes. All of the characters in the witch, except maybe the little boy uh, or the twins and maybe the goat. Uh, Yeah. The goat's (laughs) definitely not in it. Eggers hated that fucking goat. (laughs) They did multiple interviews, but the dad and the mom are both characters in it. And I was like, ah, He's just slowly gathering these people to him and everything is really old fashioned and he only likes to do things a certain way. And there's a lot of symmetry. That's why that whip pan was just like, are we in a Wes Anderson movie now? Are we just going to like zoom into like a a little hand scrawled note carved into the, into the rock. That's what the chapters were, man. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's even set up like fucking Rushmore. It's just like November. Dan is going to like puke in disagreement here, but please continue. Hey, this is just case in point. You fucking hate Wes Anderson. I bet you fucking love Robert Eggers. Don't you? (laughs) Don't you? So yeah, that's what I think they were going for in this movie. And I think based on that, yes, it was absolutely on target. The amount of detail in it is fabulously done as much as it costs them time and money. And in some cases, casting, 
the fact that they had to pause for the COVID-19 pandemic, apparently like all of their shit just got more weathered from sitting out in the rain and elements for like another year and a half. So they got a little bump up there. Now, did I like it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Hot take Monday, folks. Here it comes. Liam, that has got to be the, who are you right now? Who are you right okay, now? Man? So I saw this movie for the first time last night. Okay. Okay. Did I enjoy watching it? Maybe. I don't like, I don't know if I enjoyed it. I definitely need to watch it again. I will watch this movie with you again. I know. Well, we need to do it once sober and then once drunk. It'll be fine. This was a movie that I felt like the whole time I was watching it, I was a little distracted trying to figure out if my dad would like it or not. Hmm. It's tough. He loves this kind of shit, but I think this might be a little too brutal for his sensibilities at this point. I know my dad wouldn't. It's too violent. Too violent for my dad. Yeah. So here's a quick question, Liam. You need to ask yourself, this movie in many ways is trying to top that one scene from Conan the Barbarian where Jason Momoa straps the guy to the rock in the catapult and sends him flying, and then we cut to a below-the-chin point of view of the camera as the guy on the rock is spinning, and we saw this in 3D. Oh, wow. No, I'm against all of that. And we were the only people in the audience. <laughs> See, that's, that's something Wes Anderson would do. No, it's not. It is the greatest cinematic achievement of humankind. <laughs> no, this movie, and I'm glad that we talked about the Vikings first, because I feel like if we'd done this in the opposite order, the Vikings probably would have looked like a clown show by comparison. <laughs> But it, yeah. but it really, it, it they had the same kind of... It's a thing of its time, right? Like, just how this is. Yeah, exactly. And so... And the longships and that were super accurate for the research they had at the time. So there are some similarities. Absolutely. Uh, most of it was really pretty accurate for what they had at the time and how they were going to portray that in that era. That director really gave a shit about making things look realistic. And I think that... It's going to be really interesting to see if we get to a point in our archaeological knowledge and our filmmaking and our jadedness and bleak outlook as a, as a, just as a society that we look back on this as kind of quaint. <laughs> I don't see it happening, but you know, that's a, that's a thing that might happen. Yeah. So I'm going to come down on this side of the like it fence and say, yes, I liked it, but I don't really know if I enjoyed it. I'm the only person here that hasn't seen this three times. But anyway, yeah, so yes, I liked it. Dave, what's your breakdown, baby? All right, so Liam, I think that you you really nailed a, a couple of the, you know, most of the important things in terms of what they were trying to do thematically. I think the other thing that Robert Eggers was trying to do with his, you know, stable of actors and his crew and his style of filmmaking was to make a gigantic film. And... I think he succeeded. I think he succeeded in a really, really interesting way in that he's able to capture the grand scope of like this whole world and these these clashing cultures, but also keep the the eye on individuals and how if this story were being told by Fjolnir or Fjolnir's kids, Omleth would be the bad guy. One of the things that they really wanted to underscore in this epic scope is that the people in the movie are very, 
very different than the people we are today. They're driven by different things. They have different experiences of the world, different moralities, different attitudes about violence, obviously. And I think that was completely on target. I think that they really nailed it. The last thing that I'm going to point out in terms of objective is that Robert Eggers went out of his way to try to make this film as accessible as possible to a general audience. When the press was coming out, he was pretty clear that he accepted the studio having Final Cut willingly because this was going to be an epic studio film, probably very much like the Vikings was back in the day. You know, we've alluded to that several times, but he wanted this to be a quality, challenging crowd pleaser that's hyper accurate and unapologetic about its subject matter. And I think it was on target there too. Now, the only problem is, is that it's coming out at the end of the pandemic. And I don't know if the audience was ready for this kind of blunt, matter of fact, complicated, demanding sort of film. When I was looking at YouTube stuff for, you know, YouTube interviews and YouTube behind the scenes, all of the the 15 minute and 20 minute behind the scenes featurettes were being interrupted by minions TikToks. Oh, it's the worst. And I'm like, why are you putting this in the way of like, frankly, what is one of my favorite movies? I can say that without hesitation. The Northman is one of my favorite movies. But we live in a culture now where a auteur-ish director, I don't like that term, and neither does he, like Eggers can go out and make this magnificent, ugly, beautiful, complicated, but very direct piece of cinema, but it keeps getting interrupted by minions. And I'm like, how in the world is this going to be a success? <laughs> how is this? How? how well, I, I think that Robert Eggers was, was um, being a little optimistic in terms of his audience. Now, I've already said that I like it. I, I love this movie. There's, I've already mentioned earlier that like, if, if I could get a job where I just you know went out outside in the mud and put on bear skins and screamed at people all day, I would do that all the time. <laughs> and there is a side of me who's, uh, you know, who, who's like, eh, would you like to die killing a relative naked in a volcano? I'm like, Fuck yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I know just the uncle, too. I was just going to ask if you had a particular relative in mind. <laughs> no, no, my, 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 uncles, my, my uncles are cool. But Here's the thing, Dave. I'm not too far away from you on that. <laughs> it's so fucking awesome. There's definitely a part of me that's like, mm, that would probably be worth it probably be worth it yeah man like there's there is so much that appeals to me about everything in this movie it, it, it's like taking a step somewhere else that you really haven't been before it's a movie that benefits from multiple viewings i'll be honest the first time i saw it i thought you know from the previews and what i knew about the movie i thought that the the big battle that we talked about a lot was going to be the climax of the film and they knocked it out at the 20 minute mark i had no idea what was happening next and that is a good feeling when you've accurately predicted nine of the ten movies that you've seen recently. I love this movie. I'm, I'm 
really pleased to be on and really pleased to talk about this. And Liam, I will definitely watch this with you, man. Katie, what did you think of this movie? So, what was the goal of this film? Hmm... I think there's a couple different things going on here. Part of it is Skarsgård's personal interest and desire to portray his own culture and history. And equal, if not bigger part of this is Egger's desire to tell this kind of story and explore as he usually does. If you've seen The Witch and the Lighthouse, the masculine and the feminine and how those pressures affect society. And in particular, how those pressures affected more, some people would say primitive or ancient, but I would say older, just older societies who had different views on the world than we do today. I'm incredibly, ridiculously familiar with the time period that The Witch takes place in. And I loved that film so much because it fucking nails it. It is spot on for the dialogue, the relationships, the content, like all of it is just exact portrayal of what we know of that era. The language is so crazy good. Yeah. And this film is feels the same. It's it's a lot harder to say whether it's accurate because it's obviously, you know, 500 years before the witch or 700 years before the witch, but it still feels so realistic in a way that something like the Vikings, which I liked and I think is a decent film and is still somewhat historically accurate in some ways does not have that level of realism, which we talk about a lot on this show. And I think Eggers is really, really, really trying for realism in this, which allows some, if not most audience members to ground themselves in the story. Eggers was really about trying to communicate his vision of what this era of humanity, what their existence was like on a lot of different levels. And was it on target? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, as far as we know today, because again, this is a film talking about something that is so long ago that our historical knowledge of it is fairly limited. But he does his level best to portray it as accurately as possible, both on a physical of like, these boats are built with the exact kind of nails that they would have used then. Right, like they need to just be turned into a museum when they get rid of them because they're at that level of quality. Exactly, because they hired someone to make the nails, which, (laughs) think about that. On on a realistic level of like the nails at the time were hand every single one was hand forged. There is no factory making nails that you buy in a box. Each one of these is hammered out by some dude in a in a forge somewhere. And that commitment is both admirable and for me absolutely fucking fascinating because that's the kind of thing i like to see on film i like to see people push these boundaries and bring us to those eras and try to make its audience imagine what's it like to be amleth or olga or whoever in the story that you identify with where you don't have a smartphone no cell phones just people living in the moment (laughs) <laughs> I don't think they were living in the moment. I, I I, mean, not all of them, for sure. The CRS was certainly not living in the moment. I want to be Bjork. Don't we all want to be Bjork? 
you weren't raised in this time period, you were had such a different view on the world. And I think he does a really good job of getting you there. I think that's really going to depend on who the viewer is, honestly. You know, I think it really hits its mark. Did I like it? I fucking loved it. I think it's devotion to portraying a realistic yet, as far as we know, historically accurate, which to be very clear, my personal phrase of the podcast is two very different things. Being realistic and accurate are not necessarily the same thing as much as you might think that they are very difficult to portray simultaneously. I think the film is moving. It's thoughtful. It's romantic in a way that I didn't expect from Eggers, because that's not really something we've seen from him before. The lighthouse. <laughs> Just saying. It's not romantic like this is. <laughs> Liam, it's, it's, how, how romantic do you think a, a man banging a light bulb is? <laughs> Apparently very. Very. <laughs> it was the rom-com of the year. But anyway, it does its absolute best to give us so much. And I think we didn't really get a chance to talk about the end of the film, but I think the ending is one of its strongest points. And one of the things that Eggers doesn't really get to talk about is that what the two of these men are doing is it has a absolute ritual purpose in their culture. It's called a home gang, and it is a way to settle disputes between anyone you can be a serf or a lord, and if you have a dispute with them, you can bring that to a home gang. And I learned about this from the absolutely fantastic novel Kushiel's Dart that goes into history in a very similar way that this does, although it is an alternate history, but it's still incredibly accurate by bringing up these kinds of things. And if you are interested in reading alternate history that has that kind of realistic bent. Jacqueline Carey's Kushiel series is fantastic. So I absolutely loved watching it and was captivated throughout the entire thing. I think Eggers and Skarsgård and Anya Taylor-Joy and Willem Dafoe, like everyone was cast so perfectly in this that even if you didn't like it, I feel like you should still be able to appreciate it Unless you're the reviewer for The New Yorker, then you can go to hell. That guy sucks. Because the reviewer for The New Yorker hates movies, is all I can assume. He just fucking hates movies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think it's great. And if you haven't watched it and our discussion didn't spark you to want to watch it. Go work for The New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I mean, but it's so fantastic and it's doing something that kind of only robert eggers does right now all right dan you ready Whew, i think so all right so i have to not just go last but i have to go fourth which is a first uh time thing here on the show is it didn't we do this for mononoke hime with jackie yes we've had guests before just not on the main show that's true paul salmon and jackie were on dce here's our obligatory plug check out danger close enough our patreon podcast just as fun as this, if not more so. Only four bucks a month. This will come out on July 1st. So on Independence Day for Americans on July 4th, we will put out a free Patreon episode of our Independence Day discussion, which is pretty fun and awesome. So you can get a taste for it there. So I think you guys nailed the objective very well here. Again, Robert Eggers is not shy about talking about his intent and his philosophy on filmmaking, which I am 
hook, line, and sinker in love with. And I really love not just his approach, but his modesty, you know, like Dave mentioned when he's asked, how do you feel that after only your third film, we're already on your second, people are referring to you as an auteur director. And he said, I don't like it. It's kind of embarrassing. I'm just doing my job and I'm still learning. And he is, and I love that level of modesty. But I think with this film, he was really trying to bring Norse myth and legend that inspired such stories like we talked about, like Hamlet, like The Lion King, together with the most accurate research on Viking culture to tell a new story that we haven't exactly seen like this before, as brutally real and mystical and engaging as it could be. This was his first big budget picture. He did want to make an entertaining film that had as wide a spread as he could. And I think that's what he was going for with the very obvious attention to detail that someone with a background in production design and the brains that Robert Eggers has can do. Ethan Hawke in one of the behind the scenes interviews said in praising the director, just like all the other actors did and how great he is at his job. Each detail in and of itself doesn't matter, but a thousand details has a gravitational pull towards excellence. And Robert has that. And to be honest, after hearing Katie reminding me that the nails were all forged by hand in making the longboats, I would say a million details immerses you in this world. I think the actors talk about how they're like, our job was easy. We didn't really have to act. We were just there. It was the ninth century in Scandinavia. Like we were there. And I think the audience really has uh, the opportunity to immerse themselves in this world as much as possible. I could come up with little quibbles. I brought some of them up. You know, I agree with Liam about the 90 degree turn of that camera, but that's still within the context of a scene and a shot that I really, and a camera sequence that I really love. So like extremely minor. I have some questions about Olga's motivation. I think there's a different story you could have written here where in the end, Olga actually betrays Amleth and kills him because she's getting her revenge for what he did to her village. I'm not saying that I'm going to write that movie or that that's the way it should have been. I'm just saying they could have gone different directions with it. They decided to go in this direction. So the romance story is well done and I really like it. I just wish there was an additional scene that kind of showed the moment where she turned into loving and accepting Amleth from when he was, again, a few hours earlier, brutally burning down her entire village. We didn't really get to talk about the final fight, but holy shit, talk about like a traditional climax where (laughs) I know Dave's going to agree here, where you get to have these two super ripped naked men who are like Vitruvian and like the pinnacle of masculinity and like what a hot naked man who's an athlete and a warrior should look like on a volcano that is spewing lava everywhere around them fighting to the death again. Little quibbles there. I think the CGI of all the volcano stuff they did is amazing. There is no way you could stand that close to lava without igniting yourself on fire. They're that tough, man. They were flexing the whole time. Yeah, right. (laughs) This was where I felt like it was actually a little bit more the Lion King than Hamlet. Because the ending fight is the exact same. Like with the fire and everything going on. That's not in Hamlet. That's straight Lion King business. And the lions aren't wearing clothes either. That's so true. The lions are also (laughs) naked. (laughs) And even the way it starts, where he shows up at the base of the gates of hell and he sees the bodies of his mother and his half-brother 
and he gets off his horse. There's the decapitated horse because there's already been a sacrifice and they've already done a ritualistic sort of half burial. And he starts to make his way up the mountain and slowly loses his clothing and, and the environment changes. I love the way the ash is falling throughout that scene where it's sticking onto everything. And it's like, oh, that's such an easy detail to forget, but it's very accurate and realistic. I think George Lucas should sit down and watch this final scene because he could see how the end of episode three actually should have gone down if you want to have a really cool end fight on a volcano but that's besides the point the other thing we mentioned here is how the themes and the characters and the story here have this perspective shift where you can there really is no nailed down good guy bad guy in this narrative the film does look at things from amlet's perspective but you can really view this however you want to and i thought that was a phenomenal way to tell this story and to leave it kind of a little bit open to your own interpretation while there are other themes you could talk about and other more complicated things you could describe, it's interesting that Eggers in his first three films made The Witch, which I thought was a film about fear, The Lighthouse, which I thought was a film about madness, and The Northman, which is a film about revenge. So it's interesting that while he added a lot of complicated layers to those themes, I think each of those films has a central theme that is kind of the core of that film. I really love that setup, despite the fact that, like Liam was saying, maybe he sat down and watched this one and thinks it's a good film, but he's not 100% sure if he liked it. I've only seen The Lighthouse once, and I can tell that it's a phenomenal film, but I really did not enjoy the experience. I was like uncomfortable the whole time. I do want to watch it again because that's something that's going to require multiple viewings for me, but I wasn't in love with it right off the bat. This one grew on me in different ways. I didn't 100% buy into Nicole Kidman's portrayal the first time I saw it, just because she was a bit modern and pulled me out a little bit. By the third time I saw it, I caught the nuances in her performance and in the script and the dialogue where actually I really loved her. And by the third time I saw this film, I was just absolutely in love with it. So yes, it's super obvious. Not only do I love this film, but this was... There were a lot of good films so far in this young year of 2022, but this is up there in the top two or three films I've seen this year. And in terms of what you guys talked about comparing it to the Vikings and wondering how it's going to go down in history, I think this is going to end up on Criterion. I think this is a film that will stand the test of time and will go down as not just one of the best portrayals of a Viking story ever made, but one of the best pieces of cinema ever made. And I think that we haven't seen anything yet from Robert Eggers, who is only my age he is going to be one of the defining directors of our generation, in my opinion. I hope you're right. I mean, I think he already is, honestly. He's yeah. got a, he certainly is off to a great start. Katie, what are we doing next? Next time, we're finally doing it, folks. We're covering our, our namesake podcast. The podcast's namesake? Yeah, we're covering the movie... It's Danger Close, guys. It's Danger Close. <laughs> Damn it, Liam. You ruined it. You ruined it all. We're doing Danger Close. We're finally fucking doing it. And it is an Australian film, which was directed by Kriv Stenders. Really hope I didn't fuck your name up. If I did, I'm sorry. It was written by Stuart Beatty, James Nicholas, and Carol Seegers. And stars Travis Fimmel, Toby Blome, Alexander England, and Aaron Glenane. It is about Vietnam and the Battle of Long Tan. 
And this is our, uh, again, the theme of this year is definitely running late on the calendar, but Anzac Day passed uh, a couple of months ago, and it reminded us that we have not really covered a Australia, New Zealand film. So uh, we wanted to put one on the books, and it has been highly requested and highly reviewed from what I've seen. So we're excited to bring you that one next time. Join our Facebook group if you want to take part in the discussion on Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group. We'll also post all the rest of the research we didn't get time have time to get into here in our surplus ordinance. Dave, I want to give you a huge thanks for coming on the show and being the first guest on Danger Close. And thank you also to Sam for sharing her research with us. Absolutely. This was... Thank you, Dave. Oh, well, you're welcome, Liam. <laughs> we appreciated it. This has been a lot of fun. I mean, I got to talk about one of my favorite movies, and we had a good discussion. I think we probably covered about one-third of the things you could say about this particular movie, but we'll have to do that over drinks sometime, I think. So we will see you guys on the next one. We are going to take a break. So again, we're going to release a Patreon episode, and then we're going to take a break for one cycle, and we will return with the next episode on Danger Close at the end of the month. Thanks, guys. Bye. Until next time.